Welcome to episode 300 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting it. You can do that by dropping a virtual donation in the tip jar. I've put a link to that in the show notes, which you can find at the website or on your podcast app. Or you can buy some merch at the online store shop.stageworthyproductions.com. In the store, you will find Stageworthy t-shirts, mugs, stickers, and more. All of your purchases and tip jar donations go towards Stageworthy and help me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theatre. And if you can't donate or buy from this store, please consider rating and reviewing this show. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a review right in the podcast app. And if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, you can still review the show by going to podchaser.com, searching for Stageworthy, and rating the podcast there. Thanks for listening, and thank you for your support. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 300 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. Like I said, this is episode 300. You know, when I started this podcast back in 2016, I never thought about reaching 300 episodes. I thought it would be a pretty amazing accomplishment if I got to 100 episodes. So reaching this milestone is pretty amazing. I've been hosting this show for over five years, and in those five years, I have had some wonderful conversations. So for this milestone episode, I wanted to bring you some excerpts from some of my favorite conversations of the last 300 episodes. Now, I've enjoyed so many of the conversations I've had on stage where that it would be impossible for me to include them all. So I've narrowed it down to six. Now, some of these conversations were had in person in rehearsal halls or in green rooms back when we could do that. And some were in more control spaces like a studio or over a meeting link. So the audio quality of each conversation varies, but I've tried to clean it up as best I can. I'm going to put a link to the full episodes from each of these conversations in the show notes. Let's start with my 2017 conversation with Paul Sun Hyung Lee. Paul is most famous for his roles as Appa on the CBC show Kim's Convenience, as well as his appearances as Carson Teva in season two of the Disney Plus series The Mandalorian. At the time of this interview, Kim's Convenience was just in its first season on CBC, and Paul was about to reach his 400th performance of the role of Appa in the stage play of Kim's Convenience. Paul was also very active on Twitter and Instagram, he still is, so I asked him about his handle, bitter Asian dude. It was kind of tongue-in-cheeky. Um, there are moments, I mean, I'm sure you can ask my friends where I, where <laughs> when, uh, when I get my, my, my hackles up, I, get, I tend to rant a little bit. Mm. Uh, when I was younger, I was, I was bitter. Um, mm -hmm. I was blessed with uh, hair loss at a very early age. And so much like you, I was told that mm. once I got older, I would probably find a lot more work. Um, yeah. I started losing my hair when I was 21. And, um, mm. you know, because of that, because I was going bald, basically, I wasn't, I was too old looking to, to play the roles that were in my age group, right? And mm -hmm. so I got sent up for older roles, and I was too young looking to play those roles. So I kind of yeah. got screwed on both ends. And, you know, that with sort of hitting not a glass ceiling, but just having doors of opportunity mm. closed to me because of not only the way I looked in terms of, you know, my hair, but because of the color of my skin, mm -hmm. um, Time and time again, you know, that, that affects people. And I, you know, I, yeah. I get it when the younger generation feels like, you know what, we're not given any opportunities. We're mad. We don't want to take it anymore. I've been there. I understand yeah. that. Um, and, um, you know, and like when, when things aren't going well for you in the, in the area that you're very passionate about and you yeah. let it affect you, it bleeds into the rest, into your other parts of your life, you know? Mm -hmm. And it, for me, looking back at it now, I let it affect who I was. 
And I was still fun, but there was this undercurrent of nastiness and bitterness that, that um, maybe I was using as a defensive mechanism. Um, you know, I, I never used my anger or bitterness to hurt people. I always sort of deflected it in a very, very humorous way, um, you know, towards my situation or, you know, this is why I didn't get it because a racist, you know, or this or that. And just stupid things you say that when you're, when you're yeah. younger, you don't know any better and you just want to vent. You start to say. So when it came time to picking a Twitter handle, I just wanted something that a people would recognize, um, and it was easy to remember, and uh, mm. b that people would get a laugh at. And so, yeah, you know, it's worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> it, it is just the 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 your your early days in the theater. You're talking about the 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 you know. Not finding, not finding the uh, the the roles there because uh, and and believe me, uh, around the same time that you were losing your hair, I was also losing mine. Mm-hmm. So I I feel you. Yeah. And uh, you know, having a, a young face but a old scalp. Yeah. Is uh, is can be a a difficult thing to do to to deal with in the business. Yeah. Um, but then, um, I I I <clears throat> I had the advantage of 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 some 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 white privilege there so it, it didn't affect me in the same way that it, that like because mm-hmm. i don't get seen in the audition room in the same way as a person of color mm-hmm. um the roles that you were getting uh in, in the back in the uh, when you were you know before in the days before kim's convenience yeah. um did you find a lot of stereotyping or did you, were you able to find a community that was able to, to, to give roles that were, uh, uh, worthy comes to mind, but more like, just like, like people and yeah. not an A no. character in air quotes. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. Um, <clears throat> on stage, I was always given a better opportunity than on screen to be mm. honest. Um, you know, I remember the, the first big play, that I was actually sort of recognized at, and people sort of probably, it was um, the second play I ever did. It was called Mom, Dad, I'm Living with a White Girl, written by Marty Chan. And um, he, uh, it was, he was having his Toronto premiere, and uh, it was this, about this Chinese couple and their son, and the son was dating a white girl. And he was, you know, the son was a bit of a, he's a bit of a milk toast and a mama's boy, and was definitely afraid of how his mom was going to react if his you know, when she found out that his girlfriend was white uh, and they were having a really, really difficult time casting the father in that role um, because, uh, you know, it, it was the play was divided. It was a two structure. There was the regular world where it's, you know, the, the older Chinese parents. And at the sound of a gong, it would slip into this fantasy world of uh, the, you know, the old B movie, the peril of the yellow tongue type thing where the, the parents mm. were like the mom was the archie villainess. And the father was the toady sort of henchman. And, uh, you know, they were chasing down Agent Banana, who was a son, and the white snow princess, who was his girlfriend. And it was difficult for them to cast because they needed an actor who looked old enough to play, believably, the father, who was in his 50s, but who had the physicality and the stamina and the comedic chops to be able to play the -the over-the-top henchman in, uh, you know, in in the the yellow claw world. And yeah. they were killing themselves because they could find actors who were old enough to play the dad, but who couldn't do the physical stuff. And then they could find younger guys to play the physical stuff, but weren't old enough looking to play the father, believably. And, mm-hmm. and I sort of slid in with my, you know, receding hairline and my ability to grow facial hair. And, uh, you know, it, it was like almost a perfect fit. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that character was my first sort of foray into like, oh, Okay, this is an actual. I'm not a stereotype. I play a stereotype, so I get to play that up. But at the end of the day, he he has, you know, he's he's a dad, and he's worried about mm. his son, and he fights with his wife, and you know, things like that. And so that was my, you know, my second ever professional role uh, that I'm very very proud mm. of. Um, and theater has afforded me a little bit more in terms of giving me characters to play. I think that's just the nature of theater is the fact that. You know, time is limited, space is limited, so you're not going to waste it with characters that don't add to the play. Everybody mm-hmm. should have, like, an integral role or this or that. Film and TV, not so much, you know. Mm. Uh, that's where I found most of the stereotypical stuff that, you know, you sort of bang your head against the wall and go, oh, okay. Yeah. 
And, you know, I'm not going to complain too much because they put bread on the table for me. You know, they paid me. Yeah. I went in. But you know what? They're not satisfying roles. I mean, if you look at my, my resume, the majority near the beginning, um, you know, they're day player parts. I made a career yeah. as a day player. I show up. I'm the king of exposition. I explain things and then I disappear. And so I played a lot of ER doctors. I played, you know, a couple of lawyers. I played, you know, uh, a clerk. All these things, nothing really substantial. Again, it's just I am a cog in a wheel to help pull the story along because um, the writer didn't do a good enough job to sort of <laughs> get the main action of the, play, uh, of the story told. You know? right. And <clears throat> I mean, that's the way it is. Or like whenever something big did come up for film and TV, it was always, oh, oh, it's a Chinese gang. Okay. Wow. Or, you know, it's just all the same old, same old stuff. And it, right. it's, you look at it, you go, well, who's, who's the writer? Oh, they're not Chinese. Oh, okay. Right. Enough said, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah. me and some of the other actors, we joke about it. It's like, okay, you know, they want these gangsters, but these are gangsters from the nineties from a Chow Yun Fat movie, right? Like, yeah. Real triads don't act like that anymore. <laughs> That's so not how, <laughs> you know, and it's so even in that yeah. sort of, you know, mm -hmm. you're going to get me to play a stereotype, at least have it let it be a relevant stereotype, one that's at least contemporary instead of something that's stuck yeah. in the past. Um, yeah. So there's that. But, I mean, with all that, too, there have been gem roles that I've been – I've had an opportunity to play that have been very, very wonderful, you know. Um, and it started with Randy Coe on Train 48, you know, that, that improvised soap opera where I was able to – they gave me reign to develop a, 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 a real character, somebody who uh, wasn't – just one note that wasn't just the color of his skin or just did one thing was defined by one single thing. You know, he was a complex, fully realized character, which I love. Um, you know, shoot the messenger. I was able to play Marty Chen, um, who was the, the lawyer uh, for the Gazette. And I was able to work with some incredible actors and learn from them as well and talk about their experiences. And then of course, Kim's convenience, which is like the crown jewel for me. Um, yeah. To be, you know, to be given the lead, on a television series is something I never, ever, ever thought was going to happen. Mm. Totally honest. You know, yeah. it's just, it's not in the books. And you look at me and you look at my body type and you look at you know, my lack of hair and I'm not sexy. I'm not young. You know, it's just like, what's out there for me? You know, and then along comes King's convenience and just upset the whole, upsets the whole boat. And that's why, you know, every moment I spend on set, I'm living yeah. a dream. Siobhan Richardson is a powerhouse. She's an actor, a singer, a fight choreographer and teacher, and she's also an intimacy director. She's also a good friend of mine. So anytime we get to sit down and talk theater, it's always a good time with some really great conversations about theater and performing and pretty much everything. She's been on the show a few times, but the conversation I chose was from back in 2017 when she just started as an intimacy director. As somebody who does uh, fight choreography and, and is, you're, I mean, among all the other things that you do, mm -hmm. you're a fight teacher, a fight choreographer, a fight fighter. Um, <clears throat> intimacy is not that different not really. from fighting, mm -mm. but it, we don't tend to think of it that way. No, I, I think yeah. Well, I, there's, I think there's a certain there's a certain group of people who who get that they're very similar, um, and <laughs> but I get this all the time where I go, I I know a thing and then I I forget that other people don't know it, right. <laughs> which is something which as a teacher is something that I have to keep actively reminding myself. Um, but I have these moments where I go, well, of course they're the same thing, because it's choreography. Um, and even in the approach to the material, it can, uh, it's very sensitive material for people. It mm -hmm. can really, it can be full of triggers. Uh, it can also just be full of, um, trepidation. Yeah. Like, I don't know what my response to violence is. Yeah. I have no experience. How do I act this? Yeah. I don't even know where to get started. Yeah. I, I have my own experience with intimacy, but I, how is that going to translate? Who's going to judge me on that? Yeah. Because so much of human existence is about who am I attractive to? Yeah. Who am I attracted to? Yeah. I'm not attracted to anybody 
and until recently that just wasn't a thing you would admit. Yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting because there, I think the idea of like intimacy choreography takes away that nervousness going into like Lorena's thing is being like okay so then we and then they do what on stage okay like how am I how I don't even know how this is going to go down like to know there's going to be like some kind of somebody's going to show us how to do that and so we don't have to worry about like awkwardness of like how about I do this no okay how about can I can I put my hand hand? it says there's like stage directions there's like um a fondles so and so's B, yeah. And like the word fondle, yeah. Immediately kind of makes your puts your back. I was like, yeah. ah, I have to fondle you now, yeah. Because because most people have that sense of I don't want to violate this person. I don't Absolutely. want to make the rehearsal hall uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and uh, I had a a, a colleague contact me and was asking like, I have we've left the scene to last. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, I trust the director, but the director um, feels very new at some of the stuff and has, we've been talking about it kind of, but not really. So we've left this to, left this to last and I just don't want to go in there only trusting other people to do it for me. Mm. Um, which is a different opinion, of course, from the people who are like, I trust my director. I will, I will with abandon trust my director knowing that they will do something. Uh, and saying that with all the hope of that, but none mm. of the belief. Yeah, yeah. Um, so sometimes it's really just a matter of having the vocabulary of being able to say, "Let's let's just talk about consent for a second. Yeah. Let's just talk about, yeah, I'm okay with with this. Let me take your hand and put it right here. That I think maybe that works for me. Yeah. But also, like, what's that story based approach to it? Mm-hmm. As far as intimacy choreography is concerned, a lot of times what you hear about happening is like, okay, then just kiss. There you go. Yeah, yeah. There's no talk about all the various storytelling points that you can have in that moment mm-hmm. that we really lose yeah. when we don't take a moment in the rehearsal to go, well, what's the story of this moment? Because yeah. it's two words, they kiss. Yeah, and so that you just go, well, I guess. Then I, I guess put my face on your face, yeah. and then like, <laughs> yeah. um, as similarly, again, to me, this is why. <laughs> Those of us in Intimacy Directors International, while we're talking about this, we kind of go, well, we don't want to keep talking about it like fight choreography because we all happen to be fight directors as well. Um, but the parallel works for us because yeah. it is really a similar process in the choreographic approach to it. I think that the, the parallel works for anybody who's familiar with the idea of fight choreography. Mm-hmm. Um, but also dance choreography, right? Yeah. Like there is a dance. It's like, oh, here's some music. Then dancing happens. Yeah. And if you just have someone who's like, I've done some dance before. Let's do Hitchiku Ball Change Jazz Square. Yeah. Is a very different approach than someone who has a vast vocabulary and goes, what's this, what's the tone of this? Yeah. What's the story of this? Where are we getting to? Mm-hmm. What do our characters care about right now? Mm-hmm. And actually expressing that in the movement. Where did the 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 intimacy choreography idea come from? Do you know what the where um, the start of that is? I will I will paraphrase. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mentor in this, Tonya Cena, uh, was doing her degree. Um, she was also training as a fight director at the time, uh, but she was she was looking at movement and choreography, and um, something was happening in in various scenes that were being done in other people's uh, directing projects and like, Oh, there's some like kissing and touching going on here. Uh, does somebody want to choreograph that? And she leapt at the opportunity. And again, this is a very short version yeah, of yeah. it. Um, from there, it pretty much sort of grew. She recognized a need mm. and went, this is something that people need to have an intelligent approach for and not this sort of haphazard. Well, I am brave and I will enter, which yeah. is also commendable as an artist, but being brave and entering can be made smarter by having mm-hmm. some of the details. It's like, I can be brave and try to climb Mount Everest, but I bet you'll have better success if I, if I draw on the expertise of others yes, yeah, on the way. Yeah. And what Tonya does as well is what she's been developing over the last couple of decades is also not just, this is choreography, but there's also an approach to the work because mm-hmm. intimacy for the stage when you're performing intimacy can be, um, very exposing emotionally, not just physically for mm-hmm. people, but also let's say there is nudity. Yeah. Um, there is uh, a lot of personal danger in that. Yep. It's a lot of emotional, a lot of emotional danger yeah. in that. So um, part of what 
Tonya does is it's about her approach to it, about how do we get actors to communicate with each other? How, as a choreographer, do I um, manage, for lack of a better word, uh, the rehearsal itself? Mm-hmm. How do I communicate with the people? Where do I place myself physically in the room? What kind of tone do I bring to the room? Yeah. So that everyone feels safe. And I wish... I remember or actually knew who said this, but I heard recently a rehearsal space should be somewhere safe that dangerous things can happen Mm. as opposed to a dangerous place where only safe things will happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I, as an intimacy choreographer, how do I come in and create a safe space so that we can really explore these things that can feel quite dangerous? Mm. Um, So, yeah, so a lot of Tonya's work is very much about that entire negotiation, not just the approach to the choreography itself. And you can really see a difference in a room. And I'm sure you've experienced it with, with other stuff where you've yeah. got a director who's a little bit, as you will, will make a very different kind of tone of a room mm-hmm. as opposed to someone who's maybe very jovial or is everybody's buddy or is very much like the, the, the benevolent dictator. Yeah. Like that creates very different tones. So it's making choices about what tone we enter the room with. Mm-hmm. Reading the people who are there. If they are really actually totally cash about it and then yeah. they don't need a lot of, um, they don't need the space created for them, then that's a different process than right. a room where everyone's like, I have no idea how this is going to go. Yeah. We have to simulate sex today. Yeah. Or even if, cause again, intimacy is also not just um, uh, bikini bits mm-hmm. next to each other. Um, it's also like parent to child. Yeah. It's also best friends. Let's say it's a scene where two two friends haven't seen each other forever, and that's a very tender, vulnerable, mm. loving moment. Um, so how do we how do we allow that to to live and breathe? How yeah. do we create how do we create a hug that sh- that tells that story? Because yeah. it's a very different thing than you know two buddies who saw each other like last month. Yeah. Yeah. Where is your starting place for that kind of work? Um. So yeah, reading the room mm-hmm. has a lot to do with it. Um. Also. Keeping in mind the appropriateness of things like language, mm-hmm. uh, dress, it's very much, it's a little bit about, uh, presentation mm-hmm. as well. Um, but it's very much about what's, what's the text calling for? What is the work? Mm-hmm. So that we can help to distinguish between what's the storytelling issues we're dealing with mm-hmm. and what are the personal things that are maybe things we need to negotiate in order to have the work happen well let's say someone is let's say it is a scene where clothes have to come off and someone's really uh self-conscious about their belly Mm -hmm. so maybe we don't take any clothes off in the first rehearsal yeah because that's not important to the storytelling at this point right um and so a lot of it is discussing uh what this moment calls for what's come before what has to happen afterwards um and then the specifics of how we can tell that story and it's Again, very much like who are the who are the actors in front of me? How are they interpreting these characters? And so, how do we tell this story with these people? Like one pair of Romeo and Juliet is going to be different than another set of Romeo and Juliet right. because maybe they're different ages, maybe they're playing it more impetuously than others, or maybe these folks are really more um, just horny teenagers. Mm. Um, I say just. That's, that's very judgmental sounding. Uh, maybe they're playing it as super horny teenagers, so they're both just all oh, mashing faces. Yeah. And and as long as that's the story you're interested in telling, mm-hmm. then um, then that's a great choice. So how do we tell that safely? I mean, also physically, if you're going to play two characters who just want to mash their faces against each other, yeah. how do you do it without breaking teeth? Well, there's that. There's that. <laughs> that's a logistic that you know actual teenagers don't probably think about. But, uh, <laughs> but when you have to do it again and you again, have to do it every night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and twice on Saturdays. And twice on Saturdays. Um, <laughs> in turn, I mean the whole the the idea. Do you, is there a resistance to the idea of like an intimacy choreographer? Sometimes. Some directors are like, no, I can do that myself. Hmm. Some directors are, wow, amazing. I don't have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, but some, like, some directors really like to have their own view of the whole room. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't want anybody else, um, uh, anyone else's touch on what's going on. And I, I totally respect that. That's mm-hmm. the way they want to run their rehearsal. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes there is pushback, um, uh, from actors as well mm-hmm. who are like, I don't need you telling me 
how to do my job yeah. because they, they see it as maybe an imposition as opposed right. to a discussion. Right. But that also depends on the choreographer going in. Like if someone is going in and is like, all right, we're going to do it this way today. And maybe they think what they're doing is like having positive, upbeat energy. Mm-hmm. Maybe the way it's received that day is, all right, you're doing it wrong. I'm going to tell you how to do it the right yeah. way. Yeah. So again, like reading the room is so mm-hmm. important, but that's where you do get some pushback from, uh, from the performance themselves when they're like, I've been doing this for, for many years. I've, I've got this part figured out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that that's, thing. that's great. If all of the people involved in the intimacy are in that same boat, if all of them are in like, yeah, we've been doing this for years and we're comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. We've got this figured out. But if, if one of the other people is not there, mm-hmm. then you have an uneven stage relationship. Yeah. And that's where, it, where, and I think that happens with everything too, right? Where mm-hmm. you've got, oh, let's do let's do some close work on this scene, yeah. and one person's like, I got this scene, I know exactly what's going on, yeah. and they end up being there in a way, in support of the other people in that scene. Mm-hmm. But in that way, then you go, okay, cool. So you don't think you don't feel you need an intimacy choreographer. Let's um, your job then is to just be confident in the, in the movement mm. and then allow the outside eyes yeah. to continue to adjust the full picture. Yeah. And I, I wonder if that's where some of the pushback comes from is, is the, um, they haven't necessarily thought before about how the third eye sees it really differently. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a reminder yeah. that we all need sometimes like time passes differently on stage than it does in the audience. And in, yeah. in the same way, our perception of what's happening from the inside yeah. is different than what the audience is, is seeing. Yeah. And you can't rely on like, Oh, I feel that impulse tonight because it means that the story changes. And yeah. then let's say, um, you know, you and your co-star have been doing this passionate kiss this way one day. And then, one performance, someone goes, "Oh yeah," and then I'm gonna grab their butt or something, and yeah, then that suddenly there's, off. Yeah. yeah, that can that can throw your and it's it's different than having just a slightly different expression of the text mm-hmm. one day. Let's say that person just doesn't like being touched there or has yeah. for whatever reason that feels like a kind of violation. Yeah. Then they're then they're off of course, for the rest yeah. of the performance, mm-hmm. and sure you're going to deal with it and still say the things, but it's um. It's a different kind of pushing somebody around than what's expe- than yeah. what's acceptable within the we are being these people in this situation as opposed to now I've provoked the actor. Philip Aiken has been an actor and director for more than 40 years. He's a founding member of Obsidian Theatre and was the artistic director of Obsidian from 2006 to 2020. Nerds like me know him as the voice of Bishop in the animated X-Men series from the 90s. When I spoke to Philip back in 2018, he was directing the Factory Theater production of The Men in White. I asked him about what drew him to the theater. Okay, theater for me was um, salvation. Uh, uh, We were the only black family in Oshawa. My parents came up in 53. I came up in 54 with one of my brothers. Um, we were the only black family until I was about 16, 17. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can, you can imagine in the fifties and sixties yeah. how much fun that was. Um, and I was small. I was like five foot two. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that, and, and with a big mouth. So it, it didn't, it didn't bode well. Um, and I, we were, my brother Leighton and I were, uh, great readers. Mm-hmm. And we pretty much read out the children's section of the Oshawa Public Library pretty fast. And so it became a natural thing for us to grab our parents' library cards, go down to the library on a Saturday, and we'd, uh, go in the, the adult section, we'd grab 10, 12 books each, mm-hmm. come home, read them, the next week we'd do the same thing. Yeah. And then I learned about, uh, there was this, uh, library club, which got to read and review all the new books before they put them on the shelves. Oh. So I went, bonus, I'm gonna go that. Turns out the library club was really just, uh, a sham because what they really wanted to do was produce plays. Oh, oh, okay. So, um, I ended up being in a play and, uh, they, we needed more people. So I recruited all my friends. And mm-hmm. so we did, you know, a play and it was very successful. And then I went to high school and, uh, started, you know, working at the, the theater club, but it was a place where 
I mean, there, 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 there's enough issues with, with at that time of uh, in history of uh, being black in a in an all white community, uh, where a lot of people felt it incumbent to tear you down on every level. Yeah. And something like theater was something that I could do that was protective. Mm. And it afforded me a way to succeed because of myself, mm-hmm. but also it people would like you, and if they liked you, then they wouldn't kick the shit out of you. Mm. So I kind of credit theater and the 151 Chadburn Squadron, Air Cadet Squadron, mm-hmm. um, for really giving me a sense of... Um, personal accomplishment that I could do things and that even though you may have to, it, it became somewhat isolating, but, but it was, it was you and your work yeah. that, that was important. And I think a lot of that lingers in me till today where I'm really easy to, to say about critics and whatever. You know, I don't, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't care. The, the, the work, it's, I find it, I find it really hard to actually even talk about what I, the work I do anymore because I just go, the work's on the stage. Yeah. You know, interact with that and then you have an idea about what I was doing. Like, yeah. it doesn't get any clearer or better with me pontificating. Mm. Um, so yeah, but that, that all started back there where, you know, I was just this scrawny little five foot two kid, you know, and uh, was finding ways to survive. If if human beings are kind of like metal to be worked in the mm. blacksmith store of life, yeah, you know how you get hammered, how you get heated, how what what you get mixed with mm. changes the composition of who you are, and. And so I feel that, uh, we, the lot of, lot of things happen to people and it kind of, you know, changes them. We get hammered into, into things good, bad, and different. We just yeah. get hammered into, yeah. into who we end up. Your, your, your career, um, looking at that has been one of those, I mean, for years I compared the Canadian uh, theater experience with the U.S. theater experience and there was a long time where it seemed like you did theater and maybe a little bit of television if you were in the U.S., but in Canada, you just did everything. Yeah. <clears throat> and you're very much, like, looking at, at the things that you've done, you've done a lot of everything. Well, that was, I mean, you know, I graduated, what, uh, 75? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, the, I mean, that was the nature of the business in those days. I mean, yeah. I was always amazed when I'd work with American actors, and they'd be, like, trying to make a distinction between a film actor or television actor yeah. or yeah, a commercial yeah. actor. And I would be like, dude, I, I'm working on a film today. Tomorrow I'm at the CBC, and then I'm doing radio drama. Yeah. And, then I'm, and so there was a, there was a, 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 a grounding that was amazing, which... Mm doesn't happen anymore, yeah. right? I mean, you know, the radio drama died off, which was a real shame. And uh, uh, and the business has changed a lot, right? Like, yeah. I mean, just uh, just the the quality of of vocal work. I mean, I was I was directing out at Royal MTC, and they had just put in uh, a quarter of a million dollar sound augmentation system mm. for their main theater because their audience was having problems hearing the actors. Hmm. And I don't know, but <laughs> are we not teaching that in theater schools? Anymore? No, I don't think we are. Oh, I don't, I don't think a, I don't think we, it's, it's not as simple as that. No. I don't think it's being taught in most theater schools as much. I don't think, I think the first thing that new students do once they graduate is stop doing voice work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you're working in a lot of small venues, yeah. then you don't do it. And then all of a sudden you get a job and you're, you're, um, I don't know, at the Tom Patterson at, at Stratford and you're working with an actor who doesn't know how to project their voice out their back. Right. And you go, but dude, half the audience is always at your back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I don't know. I mean, I, I'm a bit of a, uh, somebody jokingly called me the Stalin of voice once. Um, because, because it is, it, 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 it just frustrates me so mm-hmm. much. And I, 
And I mean, even now I go to the festivals and stuff and, and I'm going, why, why can't I hear? Why can't I understand? Like what, what's happening there? Right. Like, and, and, uh, so it, I mean, the business is, has profoundly changed. Right. I think we are, a lot of people are working on smaller stages, especially with a lot of the indie work that's happening is people are primarily working on, on smaller stages and then I guess forgetting if they, if they do it. Well, I guess but here, here's, here's my, my theory of voice in a nutshell. Okay. And this is what I say whenever I'm working with, uh, theater students or, well, every cast actually. I say, usually actors have two voices. They have their theater voice yeah. and they have their everyday voice. Yeah. And they're both shit. <laughs> they're both shit. Right. Because my standard of my everyday normal voice is what I'm using right now, which means that I'm sitting on a couch and I'm vibrating the back of the couch while I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. There's no special effort. There's nothing. Yeah. Right. That's what you have to have. You have to have your everyday voice when you order at Starbucks that it's um, a properly placed resonant voice. Mm-hmm. You may ride a bicycle. That doesn't mean you're ready for the Ironman triathlon right. tomorrow. Right. If you're not working your voice every single day, then you have no chance of doing Shaw or Shakespeare or August Wilson mm-hmm. Or Stephen Adley Gurgis, yeah. all sorts of places, all sorts of plays you actually don't have the capability to do. Mm. Y'all think you do, right? Because you did your voice work in theater school <clears throat> five years ago, yeah. And now it's shit, yeah. Mm. So you have it's something that that has to be utilized every day. I mean, y- you sometimes see some people with with who have all that vocal craft. And they can sit and do an intimate scene in in the Tom Patterson or on a festival stage, and you can still hear every word. Yeah. And that doesn't mean loud, and it definitely doesn't mean pushed, but it means a properly placed resonant voice. Yeah. And you can still do that mm-hmm. in a small theater. Yeah. Mm. But the emphasis has to be there. Yes. I met Helen Knight when she was performing her solo play, The Art of Needing, at the Toronto Fringe back in 2019. I'd wanted to talk to her about her show as a fellow solo artist, but I was surprised to discover that we'd both grown up in religious households and were both preacher's kids. We spoke about the origins of her show and ended up talking about so much more. Well, why don't we talk about The Art of Needing? Um, I'm curious about... uh, where that show came from for you? Right. Um, so C portion A of this podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, the art of needing had a few seeds of development. It's a, it's the story about three women who are struggling in some way or the other with their connection to poverty and feeding of kids. And so, um, obviously that's something that's very close to my heart and my history. Um, but, uh, I think, you know, there's a few, few drops in the bucket that inspired me. One was, you know, I was out with some high school friends a few years ago now. So this isn't even really that recent history, but, you know, uh, one of my friends was, I don't even know what B got into her bonnet, but she was going off about welfare people and like, how ignorant they were and how she was surprised they could even read a pamphlet about something or other and like how they just, you know, wanted handouts. And I like, I just turned to her and I was like, dude, like you're talking about my mom. Like that's not okay. And, um, and I was like, that's my story. You know that like you were in school with me in the midst of that. Like, what are you doing? And like, it got quiet and then somebody changed the soundtrack and, but like, you know, don't, don't talk shit about my mom. I do want to jump in and say that, I mean, that is something, the, the, the whole vilification of people who are, are on welfare or have been on welfare is one of those things that, um, like I've had, like I've been on welfare and, you yeah. know, as it, it serves a purpose and it's not just so that like, you know, as, as some would say, oh, people do, who don't want to work can buy smokes or whatever, but it like, it serves a literal purpose. And, but I've had, I've had instances where people have found out that I was on welfare and, uh, 
like that sort of changed the relationship. Like I became a different yeah. person in their eyes because I'd be in a welfare. Yeah. I was terrified of that because I, I grew up in um, a time and place in the country where like the premier of, of Alberta walked up to a homeless man one day, like un, unsolicited, like actually here's the actual story. He was driving in his limo or sedan, like he was being uh-huh. driven by a uh-huh. driver. So that's how the story got out. He made him stop. He got out of the backseat of the car walked up to a homeless man, yelled at him in his face, told him to get a fucking job, and then took a handful of heavy coins out of his pocket and threw them in the man's face and got back in the car. And that was the premier that I grew up with. And Mm -hmm. there were so many more people applauding him than, than, um, yeah. Than is necessary. It didn't affect no. his popularity. If anything, it probably helped his popularity. And that was the most, uh, important person, um, with power, uh, in the province for years and years and years. And that was, and so when I was doing this show and I'm like, I grew up on welfare. Here's my mom. I was literally like, I was inviting my work colleagues when I first premiered mm-hmm. this in Calgary. I was inviting my work colleagues and people I didn't know that well to come see it. And I was like, they may fucking hate me. Mm. Like they may hear this story and just hate. Like I didn't know before I had done the show. I didn't know mm. how it was going to be received. And I, and like there was three or four times where I was like, I shouldn't do this show. I, this is dumb. And you know, I don't, I don't want my esteem and my colleagues eyes to go down and all this other stuff. But I think really what pushed me to do this show is that everyone, including myself, knows the story of the story of someone, some mm-hmm. woman, because it's always a woman, uh, some woman who had seven kids and is on the dole making $40,000 a month <laughs> um, off the government's grant. Like everyone knows some somebody, uh, why welfare mm-hmm. or age or whatever social assistance program is bunk because they know this one person or they don't know, but their cousin knows or their neighbor knows someone. It's always, it's always a friend of a friend or I heard from a friend of a friend that they yeah. know somebody. Yeah. And um, so they all know someone like that. And uh, regard, like I could go up to them and I could say, actually, that's not statistically accurate. And actually most people on welfare that can work are, and you know, I can say that, or I can offer them a story yeah. and it's my mother's story and it's about the working poor. And the fact that my mother's story and our story is not unusual in that who we were and what we needed and why we were there is not, was not at all uncommon to people mm. in the mid eight nineties. Like mm-hmm. um, it was for us. We were so typical. That's the pain. Like we're, there's nothing special about my family mm. and there's nothing special about how we got, which is why I also don't talk about how we got out. I don't talk about the fact that my mother was a pastor's wife because I did in my first iteration and I was worried that I was, um, I was, uh, I, what's the word I'm looking for? Like morally trying to like give her more credit. Like oh, yeah, the, yeah, ambi- yeah. the ambiguity of whether or not my sisters and I came from the same father is left in the current draft because it doesn't fucking matter. No. What you're dealing with is someone who had the tenacity and the responsibility of choosing to raise children mm. and whoever the fathers were, were clearly not interested in participating in that. Right. And yet we have children that need food and we punish the one parent who's decided to make sure that they have it versus the one parent who fucked right. off. And so I just don't like, so it's not interest. It's not interesting to me. Like, well, what kind of, she must be a particular wonderful person. If you're not, you know, white trash or whatever the fuck that even means. Um, uh, so I'm just, I'm not interested in telling that story. I'm just interested in saying, here's the story of a woman that really needed welfare and she took it and it was awful. Um, but without it, we may have grown up on right. the streets. Without it, I don't even, I can't even fathom to think about where we would be. We may have even been in foster mm. care. Um, and not growing up together because, you know, in the nineties, four dollars and fifty cents was the minimum right. wage. And so, uh, that's, you cannot raise three children on no. that much money. You can't even raise no. yourself on that much money, but, um, so, it, you know, 
that's that was the impetus for my show is I was like, I can counter this narrative in two seconds if you'll give me if you'll give me the podium. Um, and and it was also sort of this. I was looking for something to write about and I wrote this essay one day about, you know, I have nothing to say. That was the title of my essay. I was like, fuck, what the fuck am I going to write about? I have nothing to say. I'm middle class. I'm white. I'm cis. I'm straight. Like the fuck. Yeah. What the, you know, when I, when I wasn't any of those, like, you know, I've always been white. But like, <laughs> when I didn't have, when I didn't have any privilege, that's when I needed to tell my story. And yet because I didn't have privilege, I couldn't tell my story. And so it kind of, it kind of devolved into that of going like, oh fuck, now that I have privilege, now that I have a podium and I have an education and a diploma which says I am, you know, worthy to take the stage and to um, tell you a story in a compelling way and, or whatever. And I have the training to allow me to do that. And like now after I'm no longer in need, I can tell you about being in need. And, um, and so the irony of that really struck me. And I think that kind of, so it's just a few things kind of coalescing together. It happened to be also, you know, a couple months after mm-hmm. Donald Trump's election and everybody's like, well, it's poor white people that mm. got him there. And it's like, Oh great. One more, one more thing that we're responsible yeah. for. Another thing. Yeah. Is, yeah. yeah. Mm. So yeah, it was just, just a lot of stuff. Obviously like, I mean, I'm still very, I get geared up. I like writing and making shows about things that piss me off. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and so the general ignorance about what the welfare state actually looks like and how it's not a picnic and um and how dehumanizing it can actually be um and how poverty is not a moral issue it is a systemic and financial one um yeah. that's a that's something that pisses me off and it gets me riled up and so that's something good for me to write about Diana So is a gifted playwright and she joined me to talk about her show Red Snow which was about Chinese comfort women during World War II. We talked about some of the inspiration that went into that show. I do have to say that Diana was a super good sport here. What you're hearing is part of the second attempt at the interview. See, we went through the whole interview and then I discovered that my recorder had failed and I'd lost the whole thing. She was kind enough to give it another go and so we captured another interview. Well, I was sitting in a... Uh, dentist office and I came across an article about uh, Alpha education and Alpha is the association for learning and preserving World War II history in Asia mm-hmm. and I went aha there's somebody who wants to talk about it because during that time when I was trying to talk to the community about it nobody really wanted to talk about World War II mm-hmm. because why do you want to you know, dredge up the past, the pain, and the tragedy. Right. So it was very difficult. There was not a lot of research material except for um, Irish Chang's um, The Forgotten Holocaust, The Rape of Nanking. Mm-hmm. So I contacted Flora Chong, who's a main organizer in this amazing um, uh, organization, and she read my play. She loved it. They became one of my supporters. And every year, they've stopped now, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. because most of the survivors have passed away. Mm -hmm. They take educators from across Canada and Australia to China and Korea to meet the survivors. And Mm -hmm. that includes the comfort women and all survivors of uh, World War II. Mm -hmm. Learning more about World War II history in Asia, visiting all the different places um, of of importance, um, of massacres, of medical experience, uh, experiments um, by the military, uh, the Japanese military. And um, that was such a humbling and precious experience mm-hmm. to meet the survivors firsthand and talking with them and, you know, hearing their story like live mm-hmm. and uh, feeling their pain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is no, no real... Uh, uh, comparison with hearing somebody tell their story. It's different than reading it. Um, in terms of, of, of learning their stories, um, was it hard to find the, the people who have been comfort women? Was, it, was that a difficult thing for you to, to, to locate them? Well, through Alpha, mm-hmm. so through Flora, um, through that tour with educators, they were, they set up all these meetings mm. to listen to the testimonies okay. of comfort women, of um, World War II survivors, of ones of chemical warfare, all the mm. whole the whole range. And then in two, that was in 2009. In 2008, after speaking with Flora, she set up um, 
uh, on interviews with me by connecting me with a professor in Nanjing. Okay. So I had a phone number. I got there. I called him. He set up these interviews, and it was just amazing. So mm. I met a woman. We call her Mama Sha, and um, the last time people went on that tour, um, she was basically going blind from from crying all the time um, because pain is still so deep mm. within her, and this is. You know, over 75 years, and um, she took me to. Uh, we went to her home. I sat there. She gave me her hot water bottle to keep me warm, and I'm trying to push it back to her. And my hands were frozen, and she was just so welcoming and so open to talk about mm. her story. And I was just so grateful for that. Yeah. And then I also met a, a man named Mr. Chang. And after interviewing him at a cafe, he said, "You still have time because I really want to take you to a special place." Um, and he took us to Swallows Rock, and Swallows Rock is a place where many massacres happen, but there nobody really knows about it. So the Japanese military would pack uh, truckloads of people and tell them that they were going to be free, and take them to Swallows Rock, which is a cliff, and then have them walk off the cliff into the icy waters of the Yangtze River. Hmm. And um, so many ma massacres happened there, and I was so grateful that he took me to sites that like are not on the you know the historic map that we may mm -hmm. all know about. Um, and when I when he escorted us to the bus to go back to the the main city, the, the heart of the city downtown, I just broke up hmm. and I just you know cried for like half an hour on the bus mm -hmm. like non-stop it just totally uh, overwhelmed me and affected me from his um, from his testimony to him taking me to this place he said that his he watched his mother being bayoneted by a soldier and as she lay there dying she heard the ba their baby brother crying and asked him to find the baby brother and he found his baby brother crawling on ice. So it was snow on top and ice on the back bottom. So he would crawl forward and slide back. He brought the baby back to his mother, and the, the mom breastfed the baby till she passed away. So from that moment on, I named my uh, play Red Snow because mm. I saw the mm -hmm. whole place, and I saw this baby, yeah. and I saw the whole place, the chaos. And this frozen moment where this baby is just crawling back and forth on the snow, and I realized that the snow is probably not white. Mm, yeah. And um, so I named it Red Snow before it was called so many different things, from rage because I was so mm, upset of course. about it to pain to silence because nobody would talk to me, yeah. and then finally it became Red Snow. Mm. It must have been very powerful to to present that both here, but then to take it to China uh, and have it performed there. Absolutely. Um, now, when did you start working on Comfort, which is the play that you have coming up? Right after I came back from China, because I discovered um, funding in an envelope to write the next play, <laughs> which was uh, such a blessing. Yeah. So I, they wanted to, me to write about, uh, I, my proposal was to write about the grandparent story from mm. Red Snow. And eventually, while I was writing it, it kind of morphed into something else. Because what if she didn't die? What mm. if she lived and survived the war um, for for eight years? Mm. Um, because in in China, World War II actually started in thirty seven, not thirty eight. Mm. So it became not a sequel, but an entirely different story, and it became about a comfort woman. So mm. that she was not only raped once, but you know, becoming a comfort woman and how she survived and mm. how she was uh, separated from her her dear friend and love mm. and how what happens when they get back together and how they survive mm. and so and that's what that's comfort is is that and and I mean the the term comfort woman is something that, that when when you first mentioned it I, I don't think I understood what that meant that's um, the, the term that the, the military the military used. used and it's so it's basically the comfort women hate that word. Of course yeah. they do. Um, and the, it's it's basically a, somebody who is forced into sexual slavery. Sexual slavery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and there and, and this is something that happens that we don't hear about. And I think I think it's starting to be more you know 
mm-hmm. more prevalent in the the media. There's movies, there's more books, more literature mm-hmm. now on it. Um, uh, there's the comfort the Chinese comfort women, which is the book I discovered in 2014, which veered me towards writing about the comfort women because I realized a lot of people, even people on my team thought that the comfort women were only Korean women because mm. they are so vocal. They some of them live in the same place in the house of sharing and they've, you know, painted and found a place of healing mm. and people come and visit them and they and share their testimonies. But in a lot of places in Asia, all the survivors are all segregated. They have no place of healing. They have nobody to talk to. Mm. And so I wanted to give voice to their stories. So it was great that this book came out. It was a book that took, I think, over 10 years to collect all these stories and to have the the women repeat their stories so that it was, you know, it was... um, that their mem- you know, that the memory was clear, mm-hmm. and that the the facts and everything were accurate. So I decided to uh, give light to those stories. People mm-hmm. don't even know that there were Dutch women who were also comfort women mm-hmm. because Indonesia was a Dutch colony during mm-hmm. World War Two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's sort of highlights the importance of telling the stories, even ones that were not that are not. We love to tell uh, heroic stories, and we love to tell stories that have uh, a happy ending, and we love a certain type of story. But with history, history often doesn't have a happy ending. But if we don't tell the stories, then they get forgotten, and it's like they never happened. It's really important to work that you're that you're doing with this play. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I I always. Even though it's tragic, I always bring a light of hope. Mm. And the hope also is not only in the characters, but hopefully they reflect us as, mm. as you know, humanity itself, the choices that we make. Tanisha Tate is a director, actor, playwright, educator, and activist, and she's also the artistic director of Cahoots Theatre. She's been an artistic mentor for the Paprika Festival Creators Unit, program director for the musical stage company's youth training initiative, One Song Glory, and since 2013 has been a dramatic arts mentor with the Toronto District School Board. I spoke to Tanisha in 2019, and I asked her about the road that led her to becoming an artistic director. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so theater was not what I wanted to do when I was younger. Um, music was my love. Music okay. was my passion. I wanted to be a singer-songwriter, or perhaps if I couldn't make it as a singer-songwriter, a record producer. Okay. Or an A&R person. Like, that's what I wanted to do. And so, um, after going to Ryerson, where I studied radio and TV, I went to the Harris Institute for the Arts, and I studied music industry business mm-hmm. and production, audio production, and that was what I wanted to do. And... I was writing, I've been, I've, I, my song catalog is probably somewhere around 1100. Wow. I've been, yeah, I've been writing since I was 13 and my, my teens and twenties were insanely prolific. Mm. Like I was writing a song a day at, at one point for months. Wow. And sometimes, sometimes multiple songs a day. Um, and so I was like, that's what I'm going to do clearly. And I've been singing since I was very, very wee, like three years old, but I had a bizarre experience with a record company where an A&R person told me that he loved my stuff, but I sounded too white and he didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> so that was interesting. What do you even do with that? So I wrote a song about him called Tale of the A&R Man. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is a legitimate, a legitimate thing to do. And... Um, <clears throat> And I wrote that song, and mm-hmm. and after a while, um, after years of kind of you know doing the demo thing and all that, and realizing it wasn't happening, I had to start to really rethink <clears throat> my life. Um, yeah. all right. I had to really rethink my life, and I was still devoted to doing it, but. It wasn't happening, and I was doing other jobs to survive. I was working in box offices. I was ushering, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And 
one day I was going through Now Magazine and I saw an ad for an audition for the Vagina Monologues. Okay. And I was like, oh. And I knew the play very well because I had been an usher for it. Okay. When it had first come to Toronto. So I had stood at the back of the theater and seen it probably 60 times. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I know this play. I can do this play. And so the audition was, I think, either later that night or the next morning. It, there was no time, really, to book an audition. Mm -hmm. So I just went where it was, and I crashed the audition. Mm -hmm. And they said, we're sorry, we don't have any spots. And I started crying. <laughs> and I'm like, but I came all the way from the east end of Scarborough. <laughs> it, was so oh, it was so sad. Right. Um, and they were like, okay, this chick is crying. <laughs> we'll, okay, we'll find you a spot. So they found me a spot, and I auditioned in front of a panel of about six people, mm -hmm. and at the end of the audition, there was just silence, and I'm like, I don't know what that means, mm -hmm. and they ended up giving me the closing piece in the show, mm. and telling me that that was stunning, mm. and I was like, oh, okay, and so I was cast in the show. And suddenly I was in a cast, and I was in a cast with, Judith Thompson was in the cast, but I didn't know who she was. She was just, to me, Judy from the cast. Right. Um, Rachel McAdams was in the cast. She was really lovely. I learned hanging out with her for a day that I'd never want to be a star, because no. it's like being in a fishbowl. Oh we, went, we went to Tim Hortons, and all people did was stare at her for an hour. Oh, my goodness. Oh. <laughs> so that was weird. Um but that was the beginning, and mm -hmm. doing that show was great. Yeah. It was absolutely great. And then after doing it, the producer of the show was um, going to step down. And I said one day in jest, oh, I'll produce it. But then no one else made the same joke. <laughs> <laughs> and so I became the producer. Mm. And once I became the producer, I didn't really know what producers did, but I knew that the one thing that they did for sure that I knew was that they hired the director. Mm -hmm. So I became the producer, promptly hired myself, and directed the show right. every year for the mm. next six years. Produced and directed it for the next six years. Because it was an annual event. It was right. V-Day Toronto was this annual um, fundraiser to raise money to end violence against women. Mm -hmm. And we would give the money to local shelters and women's organizations. And so I, my theater life and my activist life became started simultaneously. And I became very deeply connected to working in that realm. Um, I had also been a, a, a crisis hotline counselor for the Toronto Rape Crisis Center mm -hmm. before. So it was something that felt very natural to me. Yeah. And I was just, I just let that from 2000 and Seven until 2013, mm -hmm. and then I read it, and then I led a national um, campaign, wow. and kind of you know after 2014 I stepped away from that a little bit, and at that point I was really in love with theater. I had devoted myself to theater. I had uh, begun working professionally. I had mm -hmm. become an apprentice with with Obsidian in 2010. Mm -hmm. That was my professional break. Philip took me on as an apprentice, mm -hmm. and after that doors started opening because mm -hmm. I started to assist and direct and work with other companies. And that was how I started. Between 2010 and 2014, I worked a lot um, with different companies, worked with Musical Stage, yeah. led their youth initiative program called One Song Glory, um, did lots of drama and theater leadership work with the TDSB, was a resident artist educator with YPT. Mm -hmm. And before I knew it, I had this resume of working with a lot of companies. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was kind of, that was kind of where it went. And I think probably around 2016 <coughs> or so after six solid years, I looked back at my resume and I was like, okay, this is getting like super serious. Mm. Um, and so I think at that point I started to think, wow, at one point, a position of leadership might be cool. Yeah. But I still thought it was going to be like 10 years from now. Did you have to learn entirely as a trial by fire? Was there anybody who sort of like guided you through producing? Or was nope. it just like, I guess stuff, I will figure it out as I go? Nope. The producer actually had promised that she was going to give me like a little handbook manual. 
And I was excited about that. And then she didn't give it to me because she was mad that I had decided to direct. She didn't think I should direct. She didn't think I had experience. She's like, you're going to destroy the show. And she never gave me the handbook. So I directed and produced On Instinct. Um, Would would you advise that for people? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it was funny because keep in mind that when I started with the monologues, Mm. I I didn't have a theater background. I had a music and and an audio production background. So after doing it the first time and it was beautiful and I felt this like wave come over me of, of I love acting. Um, I thought I should probably study something, Mm. but at that point I'm like, I'm an adult. I I can't go back to school full time. Like I'm way past that. I have a job. And so I went searching for theater education and I found at Seneca college, Mm. the one diploma program in the country that was continuing it. Really? And I was able to go to theater school in the evening and work during the day. Wow. And that was, like, if that hadn't happened, I would not be here because that actually gave me some some theater chops that allowed me to put that on a resume to mm. get the Obsidian Apprenticeship. I have spoken to so many amazing people in the last 300 episodes, and I've had so many great conversations. These are just a few of my favorites. Remember that all episodes are available for free at stageworthypodcast.com, so feel free to head over there and listen to some episodes you might have missed. And while you're at it, let me know your favorite episodes. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week.